This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so Chris, 100 years of Hilton feels notable. Uh, It's also a notable and interesting time in the world. Let's start with today before we work our way uh, back. U.S.-China geopolitical tensions. How's that playing through your business right now? You know, the reality is I talk about it, as you would imagine, a lot. I'm not surprised it's the first question that I'm getting. Um, we're not seeing any dramatic impact on the business. We, we came into this year thinking we were going to have a reasonably good year from a same-store growth point of view, that economic growth broadly in, in the world and in the U.S. from a GDP point of view would be a little bit lighter than it was last year, but still positive and, and reasonably good. And I think when we finish the year, um, that's what we're going to have seen. And if I look at sort of the indicators in our business, both advanced indicators, you know, group business or shorter term indicators in business transient and leisure business, they're all holding up reasonably well. The nice thing about our model is the bulk of our growth is coming from new unit growth rather than same store growth. Hmm. So while I'm reasonably optimistic about the economy broadly and and ending the year in a pretty good place, um, our new unit growth, which is super resilient, is really good. I mean, we're 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 experiencing the largest net unit growth numbers we've ever experienced, and that's seventy five or eighty percent of our growth. So, and we have tons of visibility in that. So, when you when you look at our overall business, given that's such a huge driver of our growth, we're opening more than a hotel a day in the world. It's phenomenal. Um, yeah. yeah, we feel pretty good. Like I think when we finish this year, both because I think broad more broadly the economy in the United States around the world is that will be fine and you add our new unit growth numbers to it we're, we're going to have we're going to have a really good year and I just, and we've had a bunch of good years I suspect we'll have a reasonably good year next year as I well. want to ask you a bit more about that new unit growth but I do want to ask you the longer though these trade spats go on and if we start to see some kind of economic impact I mean then do you start to get nervous? Yeah, I mean, listen, it would be crazy for me to say we're not watching this very carefully. Of course we are. You know, and I live in Washington inside the Beltway, so if you think it's bad here, <laughs> try the echo chamber that I live in, right? It's like then no, nobody talks about anything but trade wars now that Mexico is done in, in theory. It's all, it's all about China. So, yeah, I do think um, – that markets don't like uncertainty, right? And so this provides this and other things going on around the world provide a level of uncertainty that's not healthy for the markets. It's probably not as healthy as you'd like for businesses in terms of longer term decision making. And so we watch it carefully. I'm certainly very hopeful that com- calmer heads are going to prevail between the sides. I, I Do you think, hear the echo chamber in Washington I, saying I, that something's going to happen? That yeah, something will I get mean, resolved? I think, yeah, I'm definitely hearing a little bit more of that. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons on all sides of this, um, both the China and the U.S. side, for the, you know to to get to a resolution. And I think getting you know, getting some of that uncertainty out of the environment will be will be good. Right. Again, I go back to I, I think even with that, call me an optimist. I think we'll be, the economy will be fine this year. I mean, I think it would be better. More certainty will create an environment where people will invest more, hire more, you know, and do things that will, I think, be more stimulative to the economy. So right. you know, I'm I'm hopeful. Although I'm not in the middle of it by a long shot. I'm hopeful that. 
um, we'll get we'll right. get to some resolution. Let's talk a little bit about the competitive landscape. You have a lot of brands uh, across mm-hmm. the the spectrum. I stayed at Hampton Inn at the lacrosse tournament uh, over the weekend. I, love it. I'm, so, I have a lot of soccer kids. I'm at Hamptons yeah. every, almost every weekend. So there you go. Best best hotel brand in the world, I think, by customer satisfaction, market share, unit growth. It's right. an amazing brand. So even with all those brands, competition is fierce. And, and competition is coming from places that probably didn't even exist when you took over this brand, you know, not that long ago, 10 years, years ago, 12, 12 years, years ago. Um, so when you think about Airbnb, you think about VRBO, you think about sort of technology as it has found its way into your business, what's been the net effect? Well, here's the thing. Some things are definitely different, you know, in, over the past 12 years and some things are the same. So when I got here 12 years ago, Airbnb didn't exist as far as I know. I certainly didn't know what it was. Yeah. I, if you had said Airbnb, I would have sort of given you an odd look like, right. what, what are you talking about? <laughs> I talk about it a lot, as you yeah. would imagine now. Talk about the OTAs, talk about a lot of other disruptive forces. Um, here's the thing, though, that that uh, what our customers tell us by their behavior. We, we have the leading market share in the hotel industry. We have an average market share across all of our brands in terms of rate and occupancy of almost 115%. 15% better than on average than, than the competition. Every single one of our brands, all 17, are either category killers or they are co-leading their segments. So there's not a dog in the bunch. Why is that? Because customers told, have told us, and we've ver- been very focused on it for the 12 years I've been there, and I'd argue for the 100 years of our existence, that they want something from us. What do they want? All right, They want a, a high-quality, consistent product. They want all the amenities that go with it. They want unbelievable, authentic, heartfelt service, You know, like people serving people. They want great technology to take the friction out and add more delight. And they want loyalty that sort of connects all the dots. And what they also say to us is, if you do those things really well, we'll pay you a premium. So I just said, we get the highest premium in the industry. We're not perfect, but I think we do it better better than the competition. When you look at some, and what I would say, what's, what's different is we have some of these disruptive forces. What's the same, honestly, is customers want the same thing. Hmm. Customers want the same thing they wanted 30 years ago when I got in the business and those things. <laughs> it hasn't I wanna, changed that much. I want, it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. How they get it is sort of what platforms they buy it on and all of that has changed, I think, quite dramatically. But what the core of what they want is the same. So I'm a big believer in focus. Like You didn't ask it, so my guys would say, why are you bringing this? Like, why aren't we in the home sharing a lot? Because it's something different. Like it is not, you know, high quality, consistent product. It is not service delivery, you know, the, the way that we can train and develop people to deliver it. It's not, the, you know, the connective tissue of loyalty. It doesn't have the amenities. And so what we're focused on is doing more of what customers want that they will pay a premium for. Like when I grew up in business, like it's really simple. We want to be the premium player, right? We want to do, we want to have not just the heads of our customers, we want heart. We want an emotional connection where our customers, because we do it so well and we have so many ways to serve all their needs all over the world, that they give us an unfair share of their wallet, which is what's happening, which is why we're driving such dramatically higher market share than than all of our competition. So when I think of all these disruptive forces, it all comes back to like, you know, focus on what you do and what you do well and do it better Obviously, if it's something customers don't want, you have a problem. Like right. if it's the horse and buggy or the mimeograph machine, it's a problem. <laughs> but here's the thing. Customers want more of what we do. They want that consistent 
quality. They want service. They don't want you want it. Like you don't want less of it. I suspect you, like most customers, want more of it. So we're super focused on the customer. Like we're not distracted by all the things going on. We we think about it a lot. We do a lot of work. We we watch it. We're strategic about you know how we engage in 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 the dialogue with with a lot of those players. What's your best read though in terms of what the customer wants and 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 ensuring that okay, Jason, the customer comes back not just two Here's times, three thing. times. You're like, not you're you're gonna. This is not you know you're, they're gonna they're gonna cut this because <laughs> here's what customers want, and we just finished like nine months of work, and I've sat behind you know one way mirrors with hundreds of customers. We've pulled thousands of customers. Here's what they want. They want a, and, and there's a lot to go. They want a reliable, dependable experience, and they want a friendly human service. That's mm. what customers want. That's what they tell you. Well, and if you do it well, they don't, like all the other stuff that sort of gets in the way of that is a distraction. Give me a great, high-quality product with the amenities and, and the functionality that I want, and deliver me real service that's authentic with real humans. Know me, know what I want, treat me like a human, not a number. So what about all the hotels, though, that are doing that whole thing where on your app, you can open your door? and We're doing it, by the way. We, we have pioneered the digital yeah. check-in, yeah. room selection. By the way, nobody's duplicated this. And right. in every hotel in the world, you can use your digital key. I used it last night when, when I came. It's great. That is not about getting the human experience out of it. That's about freeing people up to do okay. the things that are less mechanical. So that means that people aren't having to check you in and get you the key yeah. because right. you can do it otherwise. That means they can be out with the customers in the lobby saying, hey, you know, what is it you need? How can I make your experience a better experience? So it is... It, Here's the thing in our business. We are a business of people serving people, and we always will be. Right. And like, I do not get distracted by it. There are gonna to be tons of things that we are going to do and that we already are doing that are gonna take friction out, create more delight with the use of technology. Um, but that, in my mind, is never gonna substitute for the people. Like, people want human right. experience. I mean, I've just finished nine months of work, and like, there's no big mystery. Like, the things that they want are really That's basic, and they will pay you a big premium right. for it. So back to like disruptive forces, sharing economy. Like I, I learned, you know, a long time ago, I was like, I got to start focus matters. Like right. you, you run a company. We're we're in 115 countries. We have 400,000 people. We need to focus our energies in the right areas. So let's talk about that because 12 years ago, when Blackstone on the verge of the financial crisis, probably not knowing they were on the verge of the financial crisis. Yeah, we. I wish we could all say right. John and I. John <laughs> I knew exactly yeah. what was going to happen. I don't want to speak for him, but right. I, I did not. Right. Maybe John Gray, the yeah, president Gray, of Blackstone, yeah. still the chairman of your board. Still the chairman of our board. Um, Fabulous person. So 12 years ago, this company, I think it's fair to say, was not focused. It's no. based in Beverly <laughs> yeah. Hills. It's essentially a holding company. It's got a bunch of different businesses. How... In short, did you get it focused? Yeah, in a, you know, I could be very loquacious about this. I won't. I, I would say it was really simple. This company um, did not have a global cohesive strategy of any sort. As you point out, it was sort of like a holding company for five or six different companies that had been put together by merger and acquisition and never integrated. So there was no common strategy. I, I would argue no real strategy, let alone common global strategy. And the culture that had once been the culture that sort of invented the whole industry, yeah. by the way, 100 years ago this year, had really lost its way. Uh, the culture had become super complacent. 
And because of the, you know, the, the, the siloed nature of the holding company approach, you didn't really have a common culture. So, you know, fast forward, I mean, what we did is we went, you know, keep it simple. We focused on developing an unbelievable strategy to sort of get this thing going in the right direction. We were interrupted a bit uh, by the Great Recession, but frankly, you know, we used that as a means to really focus our efforts. And we went about building a world-class culture. And so if you fast forward to today, um, we're more dynamic than ever. I mean, we're a 100-year-old company, but we are uh, performing better. We are leading performance in the industry. We are growing faster than we've ever grown, more than a hotel a day. We are innovating ahead of the competition and, and have tons more uh, to come. And we have built, never perfect, okay, but we've built a world-class culture. I'd be remiss in not uh, getting this plug-in. We're the number one great place to work in the United States, the number two great place to work in the world. Okay, in a service industry, right? We are business people serving people. Having our people say in the United States, we are the number one great place to work, I think is a spectacular testimonial to the culture that we build. So we, you know, you look at Hilton today, like we're just getting started. Right. Like the 12 years has been a wonderful sort of foundation for a company that's now 100 years old and more dynamic than ever and headed to really really spectacular places taking it out of beverly hills how did that change things you talk about culture and i, I and i do think to about suburban where, virginia yeah yeah I, I would say it was it was the i said this on stage with a bunch of uh with a, a thousand of our people because i got asked this last week it was the hardest business decision i've ever made and it was the most impactful business decision i've ever made i mean trying because, to tell us well, yeah. telling a thousand people um in face-to-face -face that you're going to shut down the world headquarters and that the result would likely be and was sadly 80 percent of them would no longer have a job because we were going mm -hmm. to the east coast was not an easy day um why did we do it because we you know a lot of people think well it was called beverly hills is expensive and northern virginia is cheaper and uh, there were a whole host of reasons that we did it the cost was, certainly was a reason um, talent base was a reason because it's really hard to attract talent. Time zone was yeah. a reason, access to airports. But let me tell you the real reason, right? Sort of getting to, I think, the core of your question. It was about a cultural reboot. I went to then John, you know, John Gray, now our, still our chairman, but then, you know, we were owned 100% by Blackstone. And I said, we have a great plan. We have a great strategy. We're, you know, but the core of being able to execute against that strategy is to rebuild our culture. I'm not saying I can't do it here. I'm just saying it's going to take a long, long time. And maybe I can't, meaning gravity is a powerful thing. When you have, you know, decades, we had been there 60 years yeah. and decades of, of complacency, it's going to be really hard. So I said, you know, it's tough. We were in the middle of the Great Recession, so not exactly an ideal time. It was not yeah. inexpensive to do this, right? You're moving a world headquarters, shutting one down, uh, you know, getting, you know, dealing with all of the costs of that, opening up another one. But the reason it was the most important decision I made is because it allowed us to completely reboot the culture of the company. And while the headquarters is a thousand of, of I call it a 400,000 people, you'd say, well, that's not that much of the population. It's where the culture emanates right. from. Yeah, it's the Period, core. end of story. If you don't get it right there, the ripple effect down the line is, is devastating. And so it gave us an opportunity to absolutely reset the culture. And and those that came with us wanted to get on the bus with us. Like they wanted to see Hilton transform. They right. could see that we could end up in a better future. 
that was about 20% of that population. 80% of the population we hired new people that said, I want to get on the bus with you. Like, yeah. I love what you're, you know, I love the going? vision. I love the, what you're talking about as a future. You, know, you think about Hilton, you know, at that time is like, guys, here's the thing. You could lay out all the stats. We're just not performing on any level. Like we're not having impact in the world. We're not growing. You know, our market share is not where it needs to be. We have these huge gaps in the brand platform. I, any stat, you know, we, we we just weren't performing. And you were, you know, basically trying to get everybody that wanted to to, to change that, right. you know, and say that we were the company. Like, let's get real. We were the company yeah. that invented the business as you know it. I mean, we invented airport hotels. We invented reservation systems. We invented for that the pina colada and the brownie. I mean, we were like everything you like. Conrad much Hilton. Of, like, like you go back to much the of what you think of that you take for granted that when you stay in a hotel, we invented and we were like the the peak of the peak of the business for decades and decades. But then we went through 20 or 30 years of, you know, where we let our muscles atrophy. And so the job was really to come back in and say, let's tie it back to the, let's tie it back to the origins. Like, yeah, I'm going to change everything, but I'm going to change it on the foundation of what, of, of the prior greatness of this company, right. that we were the pioneer in this industry and we can be again, but getting the population changed, you know, and moving it to McLean allowed us to accelerate it by years. Okay. All right, we're going to do a little bit of a rapid fire here to to round this out. Uh, <laughs> you've obviously made some big decisions over the past twelve years. What's the biggest mistake, and what'd you learn from it? Uh, you know, there's no no one <laughs> big mistake. I think about it. I, I think about if you know, and this is sort of an ongoing mistake, is that we, uh, you know, a little bit my style, a little bit of the style of the company is to underpromise, over deliver. And I think as a result of it, we have not done as good a job as we can do. And so we're very focused on it on sort of enterprise-wide branding. I mean, our technology um, innovations and all the things we're doing, all these things that are really pioneering in the way that we, you know, going back to our roots, I don't think we get as much credit as we should. And I think that's sort of our fault. Like, in other words, I yeah. think, you know, there's a humbleness, which I love about, well, I think of myself as humble. I think of the company, company is sort of humble. But in the world we're in, big consumer brain of business, I, I think, you know, we could pound the table. Uh, honestly, I think we, we can and will be need to pound the table a little harder. If you didn't have this job, what would you be doing? What uh, else might you I be can't doing? imagine. I, I've worked like my whole career to have an opportunity like this. And I worked for 10 of the 12 years I've been here to get the company in the position it's in. We got through the Great Recession restructured the balance sheet, took it public. By the way, two years ago, spun two companies. It was a, it was a very different yeah. business up until two years ago. We had a big real estate business that was yeah, a legacy, it's... big timeshare business. We spun those out. And now it is this pure bred consumer branded business, capital light, growing like crazy with third party capital, pushing out gargantuan amounts of free cash flow. And with opportunity, as I said, to serve customers even better by focusing more on really what they want. And so I can't, I actually can't, I, I hope this is my last right. job, okay. honestly. Best advice you've ever gotten. Oh. Best advice, bar none, is my dad. When I when I told him I was interested, my dad's given me lots of great advice. When I told him I was interested in the hotel business, I was 17 years old, and he said, great, you should go learn it from the ground up. And so I got, he helped me get my first job in the engineering department, uh, basically plunging toilets at the Capitol Holiday Inn, because he said, if you're gonna be in a business, learn it. learn it. Like, you better understand it, you know, from behind the walls, in the case of the hotel business, and sort of ground up, and which I think is great advice. And to this day, serves me well, not that I've, you know, I work every year in the hotels through an immersion program. I haven't worked, you know, day in and day out in the back house, but you don't forget those things. Right. 
Got to ask you one last news question. The Waldorf Astoria, is it going to open in 2021? I hope so, yes. Uh, our partner is is at work getting that done. I've been in it in the last few weeks, seen the model rooms. They're spectacular. I think they're going to be the best rooms in New York. It's They've done most of the demolition. They're gearing up to do a whole bunch of the work, and I th- it's happening. I mean, they are very focused. It's happening. They're going to start condo sales, which I think was reported by somebody right. yeah. later in the year. And we think it's going to open, you know, by the end of 2021 and you will love it. It'll be back to the Waldorf will be back to its former grandeur. Love Great. That hotel. Kristen said it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.